This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 14, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Most of the current crop of presidential candidates have tried to talk about trade in terms of us versus them and winning versus losing. In the case of air conditioner maker Carrier, the rhetoric surrounding their shift of some manufacturing to Mexico has earned a special rebuke. Dan Pearson, a senior fellow in trade policy studies at the Cato Institute, explains why much of that heated rhetoric is at best mistaken. Carrier has taken some grief in the presidential campaign because it's made a business decision to move production of air conditioners from two factories in Indiana to Mexico. And that will mean the loss of about 2,100 jobs in Indiana. Okay. There are lots of reasons that they might want to move to Mexico. The ones that concern me the most are ones that the United States actually could control and fix because it's in, partly in response to U.S. policy. The United States has anti-dumping and countervailing duty rules that make important inputs to the manufacture of air conditioners far more expensive than they should be. The United States has anti-dumping duty orders on uh, many types of steel, not all of which are used in air conditioners. It has anti-dumping duty orders on copper tubing, which is a really important component of air conditioning for the heat exchanging, and also on aluminum extrusions. And, and so all of these costs, carrier can escape by moving to Mexico. So first of all, anti-dumping duties are essentially a tax placed on cheap goods that come into the United States? That's right. They are an import duty, if you will, a a tax on imports that have been put in place because the domestic producers of those products have been troubled by relatively competitive imports, low-priced imports. Under the law, they have been found by the Department of Commerce to be unfairly priced. So it's unfair imports. Okay. What? What? How does the Department of Commerce assess whether or not a product is priced fairly? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not sure that we want to go there. Uh, no. The the um, there are a couple different approaches that they use. One is to if a product is sold in another country at less than the price that it's sold in the home country, then that's a kind of prima facie evidence of dumping. Donald Trump has made uh, a big deal out of the fact that Carrier has moved these factories or is moving these factories. And his solution, of course, is a 35 or 45 percent tariff on air conditioners coming into the United States from Mexico. And his crowds cheer at the, the notion of uh, paying an extra 35% on imported products. Uh, their air conditioners are already working. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I jest. But it, the, the uh, uh, concern that people should have is that any arbitrary move to increase tariffs on a product from Mexico will violate U.S. international obligations under the World Trade Organization and also under NAFTA. The Mexicans would be well within their rights to retaliate against products that we sell to them, and we would be in a nasty trade spat that has the potential of doing good for no one, and it would not bring back the jobs to Indiana. Okay. So in terms of fixing this issue, In many cases, we're receiving uh, cheap products, inputs from China because their government is subsidizing them. And from even the perspective of a a working person in 
the United States who works in that industry, that does seem incredibly unfair. Oh, it is unfair. I, I absolutely agree. If we talk, talk about China in particular, the policies of that government, not just the central government, but, but also the uh, pr- provincial and municipal governments, have driven a huge amount of investment. And let's talk about steel in, in particular. China has, uh, has grown its steel industry exponentially so that it now produces, it has the capacity to produce half of all the steel in the world. It exports more steel than the United States produces, okay? And that, uh, pr- that production capacity has been driven not because the market really needed it, but because local officials were, had incentives to increase employment and economic output in their districts. And if they had one steel mill already operating, the, they just said, build another one. You know how to run this. And, and so a lot of capacity got added for which there was no fundamental, on, uh, you know, fundamental uh, need. So global overcapacity in steel production now, uh, most of which is in China, amounts to about one-third of all the actual production. So, so we're in a huge oversupply situation. And we, and we should reiterate that uh, these are not finished products in many cases. These are inputs that U.S. manufacturers use to make stuff. Absolutely. Uh, Roughly 50% of all products imported into the United States are inputs that go to manufacturing other goods. So we're we're importing a a semi-finished or input or a crude input, if you will, and then we're putting it through a value-added manufacturing process here and uh, we're um, uh, turning it into something that em- adds a lot of value and employs a lot of people. I mean, we have to keep the U.S. steel industry in perspective. It is not a small and insignificant industry. I, I would never make that argument. But the number of people employed by the U.S. steel manufacturers is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000, give or take. The number of people employed in by downstream manufacturing companies that use steel to manufacture their products, somewhere between six and seven million. And the value added is, you know, for for steel production, you know, well, for all primary metals, it's somewhere in the four hundred billion range, four hundred billion dollars. For manufacture of the downstream products, it's somewhere in the $6 trillion range. So you're talking a factor of about 16 times more important economically to the United States is the downstream manufacture than than the primary steel production. So if we as a country adopt policies as we have to favor the steel producers, we in essence have made a decision to disfavor the very important downstream manufacturers. And so companies like Carrier, they have to deal with economic realities and they have made decisions to do things like move to Mexico where they can escape those costs. So the policy reality, uh, considering that, what can the United States actually do to be uh, more favorable toward you know, cheaper goods right. and while while valuing the the uh, the manufacturing sector that exists in the United States, it it would help to start by understanding the the underlying economics a little better. If 
China has followed policies that allow it now to export steel, frankly, for less than steel is worth. And so, in essence, they are transferring wealth from China to the United States by selling really low-priced steel in the United States, okay? And um, that's not entirely a bad thing, just in terms of the raw economics. It's really challenging for the steel manufacturers, acknowledge, okay? But uh, if another country wants to transfer wealth to us, we should think twice before saying no. My suggestion would be to get the Chinese to grapple more effectively with their steel overcapacity to restructure that industry and downsize it, basically by telling them, thank you for selling us low-priced steel and transferring so much wealth to us. Would you please continue doing it? Uh, would you sign a 10-year contract guaranteeing that the wealth transfers will continue? If we were to take that approach, I think we actually might get the attention of the Chinese leadership because, you know, if right now they are inclined to continue their policies because the United States doesn't like them, we we complain to the Chinese about it. If we instead thank them for it and welcomed it, I think they would wake up in a hurry. In a business sense, you would think of this as negative cash flow, and lots of businesses engage in negative cash flow for a long time in order to compete effectively, and some businesses like uh, Amazon. Uh, have effectively engaged in negative cash flow for most of the history of the company while delivering enormous value to consumers. Is that the appropriate way to think about it? I don't like myself the fact that that China is still selling steel for less than it's worth. I really am much more comfortable when supply and demand are ter- determining prices in the market and the government is playing n- no role, not not the role of significant guidance that it plays in China. So I'm I'm reluctant to to bless the Chinese situation in, in kind of in the way you just have it as, as, a, as a kind of a market-based decision. Should we try to gain market share by uh, offering a, a price discount? But is it a strategic decision? I mean, it, we can't know for certain, but is it a strategic decision on the part of the Chinese government to to put I, industries and other countries out of business to, to gain that market share? That's not impossible. I actually think that's not the case. I think it's not a strategic decision by China, but rather simply clumsiness of policy implementation. They, uh, you know, the, in Beijing, they have only limited control of what happens out in the provinces and the cities, and they provided incentives to the local officials to boost economic growth, and those officials built lots of steel mills. And so the capacity is there, and it's, it, it's, I think the, there's a lot more capacity than the central government wants because now it's having to pay the costs of closing some of that down and unemploying people. They're in the process of, of, of laying off two million steel workers in China. It's, they are having to deal with the headaches more directly than we are, but they, they are exporting a bunch of those headaches, and, and we and other countries then have to deal with them at a distance. Dan Pearson is a senior fellow in trade policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.